My life was out of control, but I still thought I could control my loved ones drinking. Welcome to episode 350 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Clara, Israel, Cindy, Deborah, Nancy, and Karen. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Clara, Israel, Cindy, Deborah, Nancy, and Karen, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps a few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. I want to share with you a talk I gave at an online Zoom conference uh, a couple of weeks ago. This is not exactly the talk I gave because I forgot to hit record before I started talking, but I think it's pretty close. It's from the same notes, and I did it a day or so after, and so it's pretty close. It was a cold Wednesday in April. I was sitting in a meeting room at a treatment center. This might be the beginning of the story of my recovery, but it also might be just the middle of the story. So where is the beginning if it's not here? Is the beginning when I was living in despair and anger and rage as a result of trying to control my wife's drinking? Was it a little earlier in my life when I realized that her drinking was a problem and started trying to control it? Was it when I married an alcoholic, although I certainly didn't know that at the time? I'm pretty sure she didn't either. Was it earlier when almost all the romantic relationships in my early life were with someone who needed help, who needed saving? Maybe it was when I learned as a child to take care of everyone else, when I couldn't be happy unless everyone around me was happy too. What do you want to have for dinner? I don't know. What do you want to have for dinner? Because clearly I can't ask for something that you don't want. Where does this story begin? Does it begin with a possibly alcoholic grandfather so that I was raised by an adult child of an alcoholic? And does it matter? On that cold April Wednesday, sitting in that meeting room with maybe a couple dozen other friends and family of alcoholics and addicts who were in this center for treatment. I heard for the first time, I heard the three C's that I didn't cause her alcoholism, that I couldn't cure it, and that I couldn't control it. And in that moment, when I heard that, and those words might have been said to me before, But I heard them that day, and I heard them in my heart, and I felt a weight come off of me, a weight of a task that was not possible for me to do, a weight of responsibility for something that was not mine. But now what? My life had been focused on her drinking. And if I couldn't do anything about her drinking, then what? I also found this little pamphlet. I mean, it's a one-page thing two sides of a page that's maybe half a sheet of paper. 
has 20 questions on it. It's titled something like, has your life been affected by someone else's drinking? And I answered yes to 16 of those questions and maybe to one more of them. And then at the bottom, there was the kicker. It said, if you answered yes to one or more of the above questions, you may benefit from Al-Anon. I was a math major in college, and I knew that 16 was definitely more than one. I went to my first Al-Anon meeting that night. I went to my first Al-Anon meeting not knowing why I was going, except that what else was there to do? My life was miserable. I had what we sometimes call the gift of desperation that brought me into the rooms of this program. I sat, of course, by the door so I could escape if it turned out that this was not a place I wanted to be. But what I heard there was acceptance. What I heard there was understanding. What I heard there was that I was no longer alone in my struggle. I was no longer alone because there were other people, at least one room full of people in this city that understood what was going on in my life, what was going on in my home. And that was enough for me to come back the next week and the week after. I cried in those early meetings, probably for the first time since I was a child, I cried in public. I don't know if it was because it was a safe place or because I just couldn't hold it in any longer. And so I started to feel a little better and I started to see other people in the meetings that were still living with alcoholism, were still living with the active disease, were still living with the chaos that it causes. But they weren't staying awake at night, worrying. They didn't have that knot in the pit of the stomach just chewing at them all the time. They didn't have the anger and the rage that came out on everybody around me. They came out on my children. They came out on my coworkers. They just came out. They didn't have those things. And I wanted to be like them. I wanted to have what they had, which was some way to live without all this negativity, without all this unmanageability. And the question is, how did that happen? And the answer was, it's very simple. It's not easy and it's not necessarily understandable, but go to meetings, read the literature, get a sponsor, and work the steps. I was like, if you say so. Because again, the gift of desperation, I didn't know what else to do. So a couple of months maybe after I came into the rooms of Al-Anon, I joined a small group, eight of us, who met every week for as long as it took to work our way through the steps in our book called Paths to Recovery, which has readings about each step and questions to help us understand how that step may apply in our lives. And what we did was we took those questions and we wrote answers to them and we came to our weekly meeting and we talked about what we had found in our answers. And so step one requires me to admit my powerlessness, to accept my powerlessness, that my life was unmanageable, was clear, that I was powerless, was not. There's a question in the book, it says, do I believe that I can control somebody else's behavior? And I wrote, no, I don't. And then the question goes on, it says, somebody else's drinking? 
And I was like, yeah, at least I used to. But drinking is behavior, isn't it? So it starts to expose the denial and the, and the contradictions in my own thinking. And I started to understand that I was powerless over this disease of alcoholism. That the power is not available to me to change another person. And then we moved on to step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I had a lot of trouble with steps two and three because they bring this God concept in. And I had rejected the understanding, the picture of God that I had gotten from our society from growing up in America. That white-haired guy sitting up in the sky judging us all. Nope, not for me. Not for me. And so I had trouble with this step. But what it says is I came to believe that some power greater than myself, and I have no trouble accepting that there are powers greater than myself. There are a lot of powers that are greater than me. Could restore me to sanity. That's a little more difficult because if I think about the U.S. government as a power greater than me, but it sure is not going to restore me to sanity. It doesn't care about me, really. But what I was encouraged to do was to look for the evidence. Look for the evidence of a power working in my life to make it better. And I saw that evidence. I saw that my rage had been removed, that I was no longer screaming at my kids at the slightest fault, that I was no longer yelling at my coworkers quite as much. I started to be able to sleep at night, and so clearly something was working. And it wasn't me. If I'd been able to fix those things by my own self, by my own work, I would have done it. So there was some power working in my life to help restore me to some measure of sanity, some measure of mental and spiritual health. Okay, I came to believe that there is some power. Maybe it's just the group. Maybe it's the literature. Maybe it's the Al-Anon program. And the other thing that I came to understand in this step and in the next one is I don't have to describe my higher power. I don't have to have a picture of my higher power. I just have to accept that I have a higher power that wants good for me and will guide me to a better way of living. Step three made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Oh, whoa, there's that God word again. And a capital H him, that just didn't work for me. I asked my sponsor, like, what? How do I get past this? And my sponsor said, act as if. Do some kind of prayer, maybe just the serenity prayer. Listen for guidance and give up my self-will on whatever it is that's not working for me. Like, mm, getting my wife sober. I was like, okay, I guess I can do that. What I've seen in hindsight, theme of the conference here today, what I've seen in hindsight is that the real decision in step three for me to turn my will and my life over to the care of a power greater than myself was committing to work the program, committing to work the rest of the steps, and to use this program of recovery in my life. There it is. I am turning... The way that my stinking thinking, I am turning my stinking thinking over to a power greater than myself to guide my life. How about that? And then we get to step four, which 
was one of those things that I was like, I am never doing that. I would sit in those meeting rooms at these recovery centers, and there were several of them through the history of my wife's recovery. And I would look at those steps on the wall, and I would look at steps four and five and say, no effing way, not ever. Well, working with this group, I have accountability. I'm supposed to show up, and I'm supposed to talk about what I've discovered about my character traits. Because in that book, the Paths to Recovery book, it asks questions both about my strengths and about my weaknesses, my shortcomings, whatever you want to call them. And I had to come every week, and there was two or three questions we were answering that week. It took us, I think, almost six months to get through step four, because there's a lot of questions and a lot of talking about it. And what I discovered was, I have some strengths, I have some weaknesses, I have some defects of character, but so does everybody else. And I would say, oh, I do this thing. And invariably, at least one other person at the table is, yes, so do I. And so I learned that I'm not uniquely broken. I learned that I'm just human. And as humans, we're not perfect. So by the time we got to the end of step four, I had come to see that this was one of the best things, one of the best experiences that I had had in my life so far. Hmm. This thing that I had been so scared of that I had been, heck no, turned out to be a wonderful growing experience for me. And yeah, there was some pain in there because growing is painful sometimes. And then step five, well, I had already kind of talked about all my character defects. So admitting them to another person wasn't so much of a problem. The thing that had scared me about step five was if I tell you all the things that are wrong with me, you're not going to like me. And that didn't happen. That has never happened when I've been admitting my faults to another person. It has never happened. Because I picked the right people, maybe? Okay. I picked people in recovery. It's a good thing. Step five also, it contains the principle that we're only as sick as our secrets. And that it is really important to bring those secrets out into the light in order to stop being sick. And in my first inventory and in my first step five, I did not admit all of my defects of character. I did not admit all of my wrongs. There were at least a couple that either I hadn't recognized yet or I just wasn't ready to talk about them because I felt so shameful about them. And there was one thing that happened 30 years ago that I had carried with me. It was living, as we say, rent-free in my head for 30 years. And every time it would come up, I would feel the shame all over again. I would feel so small and so broken. I was in a meeting one day, and, and we had a reading that talked about we're only as sick as our secrets. And I realized, I have to stop carrying this inside. I need to bring it out into the light. So I called up a friend in the program with whom I had done one of my fifth steps. And I said, look, I have something else I have to talk about. Can we meet? And we did, and I talked about it. And since then, it has not had that power that it used to have. It's still there. I still remember it. I still think that I was a flawed human being acting under motivations that I didn't really understand at the time. But it doesn't have that power to drag me into that pit of shame that it used to have. That's the power of step five. It is absolutely the power of step five. And then... We get to step six, which is 
asked me to become entirely ready to have my higher power remove all my defects of character. Entirely ready. What does entirely ready mean and how do I know if I've gotten there? I still don't really understand that. But what I said at the time was, yeah, I don't like these things. I want them to be gone. So let's move on. And it was some years later, I think I was listening to a tape by Joe and Charlie about steps six and seven, where I came to understand how powerful those steps are, that those are where the recovery starts, where the change in me starts to happen. Up to that point, I've been figuring out what needs to change. But in step six and seven, that's where the change happens. So in step six, what I know now for me is step six means that I have to own my character defects. I have to accept that they are part of me and that then, only then, can I be entirely ready to have them change. And then in step seven, I ask for change. And this is not a passive step. It sounds like it's, okay, God, take them. I'm done. Move on. For me, again, what happens when I ask for change is that my higher power does something in my psyche that allows me to practice the new behavior, to practice the changed behavior. So I'll give you an example. I had been just terrified of financial insecurity, terrified of not having enough money, to the extent that I wouldn't look at the balance when I went to the ATM I would get the receipt, or when they had an option to not get a receipt, I would not get the receipt. And I would just hope there was enough money in there, because I would take the receipt, and I would crumple it up, and I would throw it away without looking at it. Because I didn't want to see if we were going to be overdrawn. Which meant that, of course, I would get a letter in the mail back in the day when that was what they did, or I would get a text message or an email saying, you're overdrawn. We just charged you another whatever overdraw fee. And then I would have to scramble to cover it. And isn't that worse than knowing whether I have enough money or not? But I didn't see it that way. Emotionally, it was not easier. And so when I finally owned this defect and asked for help, the next time I went to the bank and I got a receipt, I was able to look at it and see the balance and be okay. Gee, I didn't die. How about that? So I could practice that new behavior of actually knowing what my financial state is. And we ran up, during the drinking years, we ran up probably close to $100,000 in consumer debt. So I had reason to be scared. I had reason to fear that we couldn't cover our expenses, that we couldn't cover our debts. But we are now debt-free except for the mortgage on our house and our car loans. We have no consumer debt, no credit card debt. And we keep it that way because we have learned in our programs of recovery how to practice Tradition 7 of being fully self-supporting and how to be honest with ourselves about what we can do and what we can't do. So real power there, real power in Step 6 and 7. Step 8, who did I hurt? How did I hurt them? When I first got there, I was like, I didn't hurt anybody. No, not true. I hurt my children. That was pretty obvious. I hurt my wife. I hurt her in many ways. While she was drinking, while she wasn't drinking, a large part of that was by looking down at her, 
by treating her as less than because of the drinking, because she was exhibiting this character defect. Those are things that I had to make amends for. I raged at my children. I had to make amends for those. Other people that I had hurt were less obvious, but I made a list. And as our literature suggests, I broke that list into people I can make amends to right now, people I'm willing to make amends to, and people that not right now. Nope, not happening. And, you know, my wife was on that last list because she was still drinking. And I did not see how I could make any amends to her while she was still drinking. Just wasn't going to happen. It just didn't work for me. So direct amends, direct amends verbally. This is how I hurt you. This is how I'm going to change my behavior. Because amend means to make better, to improve. Amend is not apologize. Amend is pay back the money I owe. Amends to the financial institutions that trusted us to to loan us all that money or whatever they were doing. But amends to my children for the way that I yelled at them, for the way that I hurt them. I can't change that. I can't go back and change that. All I can do is admit it, validate their experience of what happened, and change the way I am going forward. That's all I can do there. And so I was able to start making, as we call it, living amends to my wife by changing my behavior before I was able to make direct verbal amends, which did happen, but it took a while to get there. took a while to be ready. And so here we are. I'm also talking about step nine, I guess. We often roll those two together because it's Hard to talk about the harms and the and and that we're going to make amends without thinking about what are we going to do. But when I look at step eight, I have to look at a situation and I have to see what my actions were that caused harm and maybe what was motivating those actions. Because if I don't understand my motivation, I'm probably going to do it again, which would take me back to step six and seven. Because if my motivation for harm is because I'm afraid you're not going to like me, so I lash out at you first? Well, I have to go back to step six, own that, step seven, ask for that to be changed. And then we get to what some of us call, some people call the maintenance steps, what some people call the living the program steps. I might call them that. Step 10. Step 10 is my favorite because step 10 prevents me from carrying harms, from carrying guilt forward in my life. When I hurt somebody, when I make a mistake, I can admit it. And then I can let go of it. And it doesn't have that power. It doesn't keep living rent-free. I don't feel guilt. I don't feel like I want to crawl away when I see a person that I've hurt because I have made it right as much as I can. Sometimes that means not seeing that person anymore. That has happened to me. In step 11, we continue with prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with the higher power of our understanding. This step is one that I... Practice irregularly, I would say. And I've had to figure out how to, how to work prayer and meditation into my life in a way that I can continue to do it. One of the things that happened recently, I heard somebody say, and we were talking about meditation, and this person said something about five minutes without words. And I realized that I fill my life with words, whether I'm reading whether I'm listening to a podcast, whether I'm watching a TV show, 
whether I'm talking to a person. I fill my life with words because the silence is difficult, because the silence is hard to bear. And so when this person said five minutes without words, I thought, oh, yeah, I can do that. When I walk out of the house with the dog and I forget to bring my phone with me, I just tell myself, instead of saying, oh, no, I have to go back and get it so I can listen to my podcaster, so I can read while I'm out with the dog, whatever it takes, I say, no, five minutes without words. You can do this, Spencer. You can get in touch with the power that's working in your life by being silent. can get in touch with the world around me by being silent. So hard and so important. And step 12 Step 12 contains the promise that's in the 12 steps that we will have a spiritual awakening because it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. What is that awakening like? For me, it was gradual. For me, it was like when I find myself in bed in the morning and I'm awake, but I really don't know when it happened. I didn't experience that break between sleeping and waking. I just, I was asleep and then I'm awake and somehow that happened. And that's how my awakening, my spiritual awakening in the program was. I had to stop and look. We got to step 12 in the book, and the, and the first question in step 12 says, have you had a spiritual awakening and describe or something? I don't know. I was like, wait, how do I know? How I know is I look back. I look back to my life before I entered the program. I look back to my life before I entered recovery, and what was it like? How unmanageable was it? How fearful and despairing and angry and rageful and frustrated and resentful was I? Yeah. How am I now? Now I have joy and I have serenity. And sure, not everything goes right in my life. At this point, my wife was still drinking. I was still living in the chaos of active alcoholism, but my life was completely different. That was a spiritual awakening. I live life differently because I'm more awake. And step 12 also asks me to practice these principles in all my affairs and to carry the message. And I'm carrying the message now. I'm talking to you. I carry the message by sharing in meetings. I carry the message by sponsoring people. I carry the message by living this program, by living the principles of this program in all my affairs. I, I practice these principles at work. Because you know what? There's difficult people at work that I can't control. I practice these principles in my family because there are people in my family who do things that I don't understand, that I don't agree with, but I love them. And by using the tools of this program, I can continue to love them. Even when I don't like what they're doing, I don't understand what they're doing. So yeah, I came into this program broken, Angry, fearful, despairing, full of shame. I thought it was my mission to fix the people around me, to fix the alcoholic in my life, to get her to stop drinking. And I was failing absolutely and abjectly. I was broken. In this program, I learned how to, as an earlier speaker said, how to rejoin the human race, how to be a me that I like, because I didn't like the person I was then. I didn't know how to be different. And now I can like 
myself. And if I, there's something about me I don't like, I know what I can do. I understand now, mostly, where the boundary is between me and you, between me and the rest of the world, between the things I can change and the things I can't. That wisdom to know the difference that the serenity prayer talks about. I heard a speaker once talk. He said his sponsors told him, when he asked his sponsor, he said, how do I know the difference? And his sponsor said, touch your skin. He said, that's the difference. If it's inside your skin, you can do something about it. If it's outside your skin, you can't. Oversimplification, but a beautiful image. And one that's really easy to remember. When I know the difference... I can have serenity because I'm not trying fruitlessly to control something that's not mine. But I am able to know the things that I do have the ability to do something about, and I can change them. Isn't that wonderful? I know how to experience, and I can experience serenity when the world around me is still full of chaos. That's a miracle. It absolutely is a miracle, and this program gave it to me by going to meetings, reading the literature, having a sponsor, and working the steps. I hope that you find something in your recovery that is as wonderful as what I have found in mine. Thank you for being here, because I can't do this without all of you. Good night. I heard a song recently. It's a brand new song from an online collaboration called Real Women, Real Songs, where There's, I think, 21 songwriters. Each week they're given a prompt and they write a song and present it on YouTube. This song is called Keep the Ashtray Clean. It's by Tracy Grammer. I thought it really captured the experience of living with an alcoholic. I don't know if that's what she was thinking of when she wrote it, but it is what I heard. Be a YouTube link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 350. Here's a couple of lyrics. Game on, there's the grouch and a halo of smoke at the end of the couch with the usual drink and the usual slouch in the middle of the afternoon. Take a quick look, get the lay of the land, the shade of his eyes, a feel for the plan. What does he need? Where are his hands? Don't say hello, he'll feel ignored. Don't look too long, might start a war. And where that comes from, man, I'm never sure, but he's sweeter with every pore. So top off the glass, keep his ashtray clean, get daddy a snack, and tiptoe round the rages. Top off the glass and just let him be. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? Well, I'm not going to share much here, except that I will be leaving my home tomorrow to go be with my father in what I expect will be his last few days of life. I will likely be more than usual out of touch with the podcast for a while because of that. I do have a couple of shares from Alina, one on Tradition 12 and anonymity, and one on the topic of looking forward and looking back. Sort of a New Year's topic there, that one was. Hi, this is Alina. I just wanted to share on episode 98, which was on Tradition 12 and anonymity. In the overview, it would ask a couple questions. Do you wonder how much to reveal about your situation? And are you afraid someone will out you? I guess sometimes I'm 
When I share in a meeting or even in a podcast, I guess I don't really think that I censor myself or anything like that, but I guess I just want to get my point across and how I feel. I don't really need to express details, I guess. Maybe that's just me. I know some people are more detail-oriented, but I think that sharing how... I just basically want to share how I feel at that time, whatever I'm talking about, and maybe what I'm going through and what I did to maybe help get myself through that situation. I guess sometimes I'm worried... I don't know sometimes that I'm worried that someone's going to out me. I do wonder if they're going to talk about me behind my back because I know everyone's got sponsors or everyone's got... There's been a couple meetings where I've been to where there's people that obviously have a history together and that's fine and it's something that I can appreciate. But I don't know. I would just hope that everyone is genuine and is in a good place and has good intentions and they're not going to judge. Everyone's there for kind of the same purpose in a way. We came there because we were confused, hurt, trying to fix something and then realizing that it was, you know, ourselves that we can only control and have power over really. For me, it was like finding my higher power and everything like that. I would hope no one would out me or anything like that. And then do you have idols in the program? And I think, I don't know if I would call them idols. I know that there's been a few shares over the years. And when I hear something or it touches me or it moves me, I always try to reach out to that person and let them know, you know, what it did for me and what it meant for me. And maybe if I could relate to it, what, you know, what kind of things that I've changed in my life because of what I've heard or anything like that. I think that was one of the reasons why I originally picked my sponsors, because when she did a speaker meeting at one of our meetings, it was like what she had gone through in her story was so, so much. And the fact that she sat there and was so confident, she seemed confident and poised. And I just felt like, she just seemed to have the answers. And I know that's not what she's there for now, but at the time I just was like, oh my gosh, she's turned her life around and she went through a lot. And here she is being transparent in front of all of us and sharing her experience, strength and hope. And I just wanted that. I wanted that. I wanted her as a friend and I wanted her just to be there and support me and help me get through things, whether they were good or bad. Mostly, obviously, at the times that I struggle, I, I needed her the most and I wanted her the most. I know that the program is basically my program and no one can actually fix me or be that for me or provide me with happiness. I got to find that myself. But definitely she's always you know there for me when I need her. But I know that she's normal like everybody else and she has a program as well and she has a sponsor and, you know, that I can appreciate too. Then there's a couple Al-Anon friends, one that I've grown really close to and we basically talk at least maybe I think on average once a week maybe, but I know that we text like every day and 
just having her there and knowing that I'm not alone is like a huge help. I can tell that she listens with intent and she doesn't judge me and she's never once criticized how I do things or why didn't I do it this way or you should do this. And she's very careful about what she says. And I know that she really cares about me and she just wants the best for me. And so I think that is a huge blessing. And I'm glad that her and I were able to connect. And she she was one of those too. When I heard her speak and she shared, she had gone through a lot in her life. And I could relate to a lot of it. Even now, there's times where even though maybe our qualifying experience is different and maybe our lives are, are different, there are similarities too as far as how we think and maybe how we process things. I'm just really grateful for that. But anyways, that was all I really had regarding Tradition 12. I know that anonymity is super important and I'm grateful to have these rooms and just feel comfortable to go in there and share and not have to worry about other people finding out my personal life if I don't want them to know it. So anyways, thank you for letting me share. I wanted to share on episode 101, which was about looking back and looking ahead. I did listen to the other two podcasts right before this about your hundredth episode and looking back on all that's that you've accomplished and stuff like that with the podcast and just the different speakers and hearing their experience about being on the show and and supporting you and stuff like that and supporting the podcast and just helping to keep this going forward. So I think it's, there's a lot to be said for that. And I congratulate you on that and the fact that it's still up and going. I know that it takes many people to have that outcome. So I appreciate everyone that that gets involved and shares and contributes to the podcast just to keep it going because it's done a lot for me. And I know that for me, giving back or just being there for someone else seems like the best way that I can pay back for something. So And I know that's a lot as far as recovery goes and also for like my personal life and work experience. And I've shared a little bit about my work experience and just being in the field for a while and like 20, 21, 22 years. I've ran into a lot of people that are several years in and just very, I don't know what it is. I'm not going to really, it's hard for me to pinpoint. I can't really talk about one in particular person, but there are people that just hold on to their knowledge and hold on to their, you know, what they've learned, their tools and stuff over the years and their experience and just stuff like that. And I just, I don't know why that is. And it's not for me to decide, but I've always been one to want to teach and show other people what works for me and how I've learned. And I can learn from them too, because I'm always asking questions. Nobody is perfect. And I know for me that I continue to learn even 21 years into a certain field that you're practicing all the time. So as far as looking back and looking ahead, when I'm sharing this, we are in quarantine in a pandemic. I can't believe most of the year is gone. And I feel like I haven't really accomplished much. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because of the quarantine that I've been so busy with work, just It's been crazy. It's been demanding. It's been emotional. 
Um, I've been trying to work my program at the same time and just keep myself involved with my Al-Anon friends and community and my Zoom meetings and stuff like that. And it's just been really crazy the how fast the year has flown by. I've learned a lot about compassion and just the good that there's good in people. I'm trying not to focus on we've had a lot of racial protests too that I've witnessed and I try not to look in the news and focus on the negativity aspect of it or people that are hating on it. I try to look at just people coming together for a common goal and just trying to make a change and trying to make things better. And so that's as far as looking back, as far as looking ahead, there's so much more that I want as far as personal growth. And I try to maintain my serenity by meditating. So I'm going to continue to do that and um, continue my workouts, which have been tough with the gym being closed, but Zoom and YouTube uh, videos and just previous videos of my teachers doing stuff online have been helping me. So I know the gyms are open, but I'm still hesitant. It's been a few weeks that they've been open, but the class sizes are limited and it's hard to get in. My gym closed down and joined another gym that's a little farther from my house, which is a commute. So there's just a lot. My schedule's been thrown around and everything, but I'm trying to do the best that I can. So looking ahead, I'm just trying to focus on self-care and just doing one day at a time basically has helped me a lot. So I'm grateful for the program too. That's all I have. Thank you for letting me share. If you want to join our conversation here, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or an email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Our website is therecovery.show. We have all the information about the show with notes for each episode at therecovery.show slash episode number, videos for the music, and so on. Get some feedback this week. I'm still focusing on, on recent feedback from y'all. Robin writes about the episode 347, If I'm Not the Problem, There Is No Solution. As always, Spencer and Eric, I so enjoyed the podcast. Wonderful shares, all. I could see a bit of myself in all of them, which is the point of sharing our experience, strength, and hope, right? Your podcast is such a blessing. I get so much out of every episode. I particularly enjoyed the share from the person whose sponsor fired them from jobs they hadn't been hired for. Perfect. And Alyssa left a note. Hi, Spencer and Eric. Thanks for this episode. I listened to it last weekend and then heard some share about this quote in a meeting the next day. I shared it with my partner who has been in NA for over 12 years and they had never heard of it. Do you know the origin of this line? I've tried Googling it to no avail. I don't know. I think Eric said he heard it in a meeting. The one that you might hear more often is you're looking at the problem. Maybe a little note you put on your mirror. So when you look in the mirror, you see a little note, you're looking at the problem. I've heard that one in some other contexts, but the if I'm not the problem, there is no solution. That was new to me when Eric brought it. Denelia wrote about the slow recovery episode number 345. Thank you so much for this episode. I'm an ACOA, but I like to listen to this podcast that my sponsor recommended. I'm currently working on my step four and I needed to hear this. 
It has taken me six months to really get in the flow of working it consistently and getting clear about what I'm doing in this step. It will probably take me a year or more to finish working it. Thanks for mentioning how long you've been working your step. Now I don't feel alone and can see that others have had the patience to keep working it, even when it feels so slow. Caroline sent us a note about a version of the Serenity Prayer. She writes, Someone sent this version of the Serenity Prayer to my Al-Anon group chat, and it reminded me of the activism episode. So this version of the prayer goes, God, grant me the patience to accept the systems I cannot change today, the courage to strategically enact progress when I know I can, and the wisdom to know that despite structural oppression, I can still make a difference. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Caroline continues, I also know this version of the Serenity Prayer. Higher power, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the person I can, and the wisdom to know that one is me. Perhaps there could be an episode dedicated to the alternate versions of the serenity prayer or an episode on prayers in general. I've heard of the seven-step prayer and help thanks wow, but would love to learn more. Thank you for your time and effort here. Gratefully, Carolyn. Or maybe it's Caroline. I'm not sure. And then she wrote, later, I was talking with a program friend about the adapted serenity prayer above, and we came up with some other thoughts I'd like to share in terms of activism and using recovery principles. Someone can try to change things and police others. That can be rooted in character defects like control, manipulation, and wanting things to be one certain way. However, when someone is advocating, doing activism or social justice work, it can be motivated by the sense of possibility and hope for a better future and coming from a place of support. It's possible to try to change things that we may see as unacceptable without black and white thinking from a place of detachment and letting go of an exact outcome while advocating for improvements and solutions. Another reminder to work on step four to be honest with what my intention really is and how and why I'm engaging in a solution. Gratefully, Carolyn. Allison writes about service. Hi, Spencer. I jumped right into service after a few meetings. I signed up to be the treasurer of the group. I did it for the wrong reasons, yet the right one, it kept me coming back. Being overly responsible, I had to be there to give the report and collect the money. I shied away from other service that involved putting myself out there, i.e. having to talk. I was afraid of making a mistake. As I grew, I did become a group representative. It was a step outside my comfort zone. I had to go to district meetings and talk. At assembly, I was able to take notes and report back to the group. Great work for my over-organized brain. I thought of being a district representative after I retired. My higher power had other plans. I stepped into the role five and a half years ago. Although at work I was in a leadership position, being the DR really helped me balance and ensure all voices were heard, thus growing spiritually. I have to keep in check the desire to just get it done now and mark off my to-do list. I had to use principles above personalities often. What is funny is being out of the role for over two years, the now treasurer mentioned she thought I didn't like her when I was DR. My shyness or not wanting to talk, to be reserved, came across to others as dislike. Something for me to ponder. I've been district literature coordinator, district secretary, and now coordinate our Zoom meetings. These are organized positions, per se. I think the one that brings the most growth to me are the less visible positions. Leading a meeting and sharing at a meeting. These are service and challenge me to share myself, which is still not comfortable even with almost 14 years of Al-Anon. I noticed in the last six months what I feel is tremendous growth. I contribute this to leading two meetings a week. I have to challenge myself to explore uncomfortable topics and share myself after opening the topic. Thanks for your service. Hugs, Allison. Thank you, Allison, for writing about, you know, why you got into service for the wrong reason, but 
what you did, what it did for you, and how you learned about yourself from it. And also, the very important idea that sharing in a meeting is service, because it absolutely is. Mark left us a voicemail. Hey, Spencer, this is Mark. I just want to say I got your link to the conference appearance. That was terrific. It was nice to put a, a face to that voice that has become so familiar. And I stuck around and watched some of the other sessions, which were very interesting as well. I, I did want to call on the service episode. I missed getting it in ahead of time, but I really got a lot out of that. It brought me back to my, my first days in the rooms. I just didn't feel connected. I was socially awkward in doing these little bits of service, getting the chairs, getting filling book orders, getting coffee cups from the store, whatever it was a way for me to feel more connected and to begin to pay this immediate debt of gratitude I felt to those people in this program. It was a way to keep me coming back. And it also reminded me of a, a couple of years in, I went to, for actually two years in a row, I went to a, a uh, retreat, a weekend retreat that had half Al-Anon, half AA. And it was a very intense experience because I had never really was exposed to the AA side of it to that degree. And the way it worked is the last evening they would have a speaker from AA and a speaker from Al-Anon give a more lengthy share, just tell their story. And the guy who was supposed to do it on the Al-Anon side didn't show up. And the organizers asked me, and I was really took a step back because I didn't feel ready or capable. Uh, but I hadn't heard that thing of your co-host had mentioned. Someone said, if anybody asks you to do some service, just say yes. I wasn't there. I didn't have the courage to say no either. So I said, if no one else wants to do it, I'll do it. And as it turned out, somebody did volunteer, and it was a guy from my home group, as it happened, was at the retreat as well. And I had known him well and respected him and had heard him speak many times. But that was a different level. That was a whole different thing. It was so moving and meaningful. And I got the feeling watching him, that even for him, it was like that. And now as I look back on it years later, when I said half no to that, I missed an opportunity because I, I have to this day, I don't know what I would have said, but that's the way the program works for me sometimes is when you do extend yourself and things do come out of your mouth that you hadn't thought, and, you, and sometimes it's the truth. So it was, as I look back on it, it, not only shouldn't I have done it just because that's what I should have done, but I missed an opportunity. And the other thing I would say is years later, I, I had another interest. This wasn't someone asking me. I actually went looking for a portion of Al-Anon that was always intriguing to me, and I wondered how it operated. But I went looking for this service opportunity, and after a time, I was able to fulfill it. And it was, it's been a long-term project. It really required some daily work. It's never been a burden but it was reading material and commenting on it in terms of the program. And it was a daily thing. I was working with another group of people, entirely different perspective. And the funny thing was, is it happened to coincide with the pandemic, working from home. I'm sitting at the same desk doing my regular work all day. It was such a wonderful break. Whenever I was getting irritated or discouraged, I'd minimize those screens, pop up the Al-Anon project, and then when I went back, it was like a tonic. My attitude and my energy level was always back where it should be. And it concluded that part of it at the end of the year, and I think every 
couple of days, I realized how much I miss doing that daily work. I have other stuff. I can do the readings and go to meetings. But I got so much on so many levels out of that service opportunity. It's really one of those cliches. You get back ten times what you put in. And I think it's an underestimation. And I just wanted to say thanks again. Who's done out there during the years? Thanks and have a good day. Thanks, Mark, for that. Thanks for calling. And Anna also left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. My name is Anna. First of all, thank you so much for your service. Second of all, I just listened to the latest episode, Service in Al-Anon. And first of all, just as usual, very moved. But also, and I guess third and most important, the idea at the end that if you were ever to do a show on food and recovery from that disease through the 12 steps, I would love to help you. I will be celebrating 13 years as a double winner in AA and Al-Anon this year and four years having recovered from anorexia and bulimia through the 12 steps as a spiritual experience. And I feel there are, to that woman's question, a lot of OA podcasts and meetings. And I'm sorry she hasn't found them, but that they are available. And it's definitely something that the 12 steps works on. So, yeah, it's not talked about a lot, particularly what I call my end of the disease, which is the anorexia, which is slightly different. But, yeah, well done on everything you're doing. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure thousands of other people do too. Okay, night. Thank you for offering to share your experience. Carolyn writes, Hello, Spencer. I heard someone at a meeting say that they learned from the lineage of sponsorship from their sponsors that they passed down to their sponsee and that they are standing on the shoulders of the people who sponsor in that method. I never heard of this before. Can any listeners expand on this? I'm interested to hear about these lineages of sponsorship and what people do with their sponsors, specifically in the Zoom era, like text them, what homework looks like, how often you talk, etc. Thanks so much. Gratefully, Carolyn. Lineage. So what I have heard, I haven't heard that exact word, I think, or probably have, but what I hear people say is, my sponsor work the steps with me in this way, and therefore I work the steps with the people I sponsor in the same way. And maybe I hear it more from AA speakers than Al-Anon speakers, but it's definitely a thing that I heard said, and maybe that's what they mean. And how do sponsors work with their sponsees in the Zoom era? A lot of the times when I was working with sponsees, even before Zoom, it was on the phone. So in that sense, it's not very different, except if we Zoom, we can actually see each other. I don't have sponsees at the moment who are actively working the steps, so I can't really speak to that. Maybe somebody else can write in and say, how has your sponsorship changed with Zoom? Thanks. Mary wrote, hi, Spencer. I'm a new Al-Anon member. It is two weeks today that I've been attending meetings. I feel a lot of peace as I listen to your podcasts. I've been attending Zoom meetings, telephone meetings, and reading how Al-Anon works. My son is in his 30s and has lived with his father and me for the last four years. My husband and he have what I would call a contentious relationship. My husband has worked in the drug and alcohol field for his whole career. I knew my son drank, but I did not label him an alcoholic until right before Christmas. He drank so much that he started to vomit and couldn't stop. He was hospitalized. So my husband wants him to move out. 
I know I'm an enabler, but I'm not there yet as far as kicking him out. He does not have a job. We are in a pandemic. I can't do it. My heart goes into spasm thinking about it. So as I listen to the words from meetings and readings, I hear that I don't have to make a decision right away, but my husband feels that I am siding with my son and not him. So I'm walking on eggshells for two people. Luckily or not, we are away in sunshine for three months, so I only have to listen to my husband's frustration and not my son. Have you done any episodes or does anyone have any experience, strength, and hope on this topic of when parents do not agree? Thank you, Mary. I don't think that's something that we have talked about in the podcast, at least not as a topic. It probably has come up in in some shares that people have done when they're on the podcast. But yeah, it's that's a difficult one. I think for me, it would be important to talk to my wife about my feelings, my fears. You know, I'm afraid that if we kick him out of the house in the middle of the winter and he has no place to go, he's going to freeze. He's going to get COVID and die. You know, those are legitimate fears. And by expressing them, maybe that helps lead to a conversation about solution rather than an oppositional conversation. I don't know. That's all I've got right now. Thanks for writing. John Quill says, hi, Spencer and everyone else who makes this website and its contents possible. I thank you from the very bottom of my heart for doing this and keeping with it. I've only, within the past two weeks, discovered Al-Anon and also ACOA, and I'm so grateful for their existence. Words cannot express enough. I feel like a starving child who has come across a banquet, and I don't have to steal to get to the table. So now I have the problem, and what a problem, of where do I start? I've attended three meetings, both Al-Anon and ACA, and am reading as much as I can absorb. My story, I'm sure, is not unusual. Being the eldest child of six in a UK military family with a heavy drinking and violent father. Mother was deeply depressed, so largely absent. My siblings and I are very close as a result. We still regard ourselves as a gang, backs in, knives out. And we learned to run fast to hiding places and hedges and other places my parents knew nothing about. I'm now in Australia after running this far for my dad at 19, which of course has brought me a lot of guilt over leaving my siblings behind for the rest of my life. I'm now 69, relieved of all child and grandchild rearing, and found myself lost without someone to care for. So, you know, I could get to all those things I had wanted to do. But I was, I am, frozen. Have no idea who I actually am, bereft from needing to please or worry about someone else, still suffering the guilt and shame of childhood. I know I badly need reparenting, inner child work, and I'm starting to look at that too. Please, could you consider an episode or some episodes on self-care and reparenting? Your website is the best I've come across in my wanderings, complete with books and meeting links, and your podcasts are right on point. Thank you, thank you, thank you, John Quill. I did a quick search on the website for self-care, and I found three episodes. And I know we talk about self-care a lot, and, and I don't recall talking about reparenting in any of the episodes. So there's a topic that I could use a co-host for because I don't really know about it. Episode 39 was titled Self-Care at therecovery.show slash 39. 89 titled Taking Care of Myself, again, therecovery.show slash 89. You see the pattern there. And 163 called Rediscovering Myself, again, episode at therecovery.show slash 163. So you might check those out to see if any of those have help. Yeah. 
Debbie writes, I first attended Al-Anon on October 31st, 2018. I have not been back since February 2019 because of scheduling conflicts, but know that I need to return. I had just started going through step four with my sponsor. Anyway, my first question has always been, what does it mean when people say, work the program? How do I do that? How do I know I'm doing it? And also, what's the difference between supporting slash loving and enabling? They sound the same to me for some reason. He referred to enabling in 347 and 348, but I still don't understand the difference. Debbie, okay, so first question, what does it mean to work the program? For my understanding of what does it mean to work the program is to take each of the steps and either do the action that it says, take an inventory and share it with another person, or to understand what that step means to me. And I found some of the workbooks, some of the books that Al-Anon has that have questions for each step to be helpful in that process. The book Paths to Recovery, also sometimes known as the Tan Book or the Beige Book, each chapter has discussion of the step, has some member shares about the step, and then has a set of questions which are actually entitled Working the Step. So that's one possibility. Basically, it means to go through the steps, to do the actions, to understand how they apply in your life as best you can. Enabling, the definition that spoke to me of enabling came from the person who was my sponsor at the beginning of the program. And that definition is getting between somebody and the consequences of their actions. So when I would call my wife's work and tell them that she wasn't feeling well because she was hungover. I was enabling her because I was doing it instead of her. And she had very little consequences from that. Eventually she did, but not at that moment. Another definition that I have heard is doing for someone something they can do for themselves, which is similar. Whereas being supportive and loving, well, loving is I can love somebody without doing specific actions that would be constituted enabling. I can be supportive by doing the actions that the person is not capable of. I don't know if that helps. Those That's my short versions of supportive, loving, and enabling. Esther wrote, thank you for making me feel not alone with an alcoholic spouse. I found and started listening to your podcast in 2018. Knowing that your podcast is there to listen to makes this rocky trek during my journey through life bearable. Feeling very thankful and grateful, Esther. Thank you, Esther. This is why we do it. Laurel says, this podcast has been a lifesaver. Thank you so much for your service. I've been a grateful member of Al-Anon for five years, and the podcast has definitely supplemented my program and most definitely enhanced it. I listen while I get ready for work, while I commute to and from work, and anytime I'm walking in nature, even if I'm making supper. I'm very grateful to you, Spencer, and all of your guests. I especially enjoy your episodes with Eric. The episode Hands Off Pays Off was especially meaningful to me. I could go on and on. I only found the podcast about a month ago, and I'm so looking forward to listening to all the episodes. I was looking for an episode on shame, being the parent of a child who was incarcerated, which is what initially led me to Elanon. But it looks like that was an archived episode, which I couldn't access. Anyway, thanks again. I think the shame episode is now should now be available in your app. They're always all available on the website. And if it's not working on the website, please let me know because I'm sure there's something I can do about it there. 
which actually leads me to Jennifer's note, who wrote to say that the first 50 or so episodes were missing from the feed in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Also, she said probably in Stitcher. And I write, I, I just had to say thank you for pointing that out to me. I have updated the settings. All 350 episodes should now be available to you in your favorite podcast app. And if not right now, within a day or so, sometimes it takes them a little while to update. There is an episode, and I don't remember the number. Let me go look. Episode 287, Mark and Michelle talk about the experience of their son being in prison. So you might want to listen to that one too. Finally, Anne writes, I'm a newcomer to Al-Anon, basically. I've been to about five meetings, then COVID. I've also been on two Zoom meetings with the same group. I'm not seeming to get it. I listen to shares and enjoy them, but I think I need a sponsor. I haven't started to work the steps, and sponsors are not ever mentioned at the meetings. I've been so eager to gain information. I'm consumed with guilt and anger and have no one to talk to. Today, I looked just hoping to find a podcast and found y'all. I enjoyed it immensely, and I'll be back for sure. I would really appreciate a podcast referring to parenting children alcoholics. Although my daughter is 52 now, and I've only been involved for about three years, believing she was sober for many years, I think I'm losing my mind some days. Yeah, and I know the feeling. I was there with my wife, not my children. But yeah, there were there definitely were days I was losing my mind. No question about it. In my experience, the best place to find a sponsor is at a meeting. And... I don't know if there's a space in the meetings you go to for people to speak up at the beginning or the end of the meeting, or maybe the meeting after the meeting, where you can say, hey, I'm looking for a sponsor. Would anybody here care to do that? Something like that. And you might also check out some other meetings, because I know that some meetings focus more on sponsorship than others, for sure. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back whatever your problems there are those among us who have had them too if we did not talk about a problem you are facing today feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode may understanding love and peace grow in you one day at a time